Welcome to Deep Dive, where we explore how craft and story come together and the ways in which filmmaking teams collaborate to transport us to worlds unknown. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm the associate craft editor over at IndieWire, and we are going to take a look at a team that dove headlong into one of the best known and most beloved worlds in fiction. That's right. We are talking about Prime Video's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. But do not worry, you do not need any Silmarillion glossaries here, and the identity of Celebrimbor's half-cousin, once removed, will not be on the test. We're not going to focus super hard on the lore explored in Tolkien's appendices to The Lord of the Rings, which form the springboard for the plot of the series. What we are going to focus on is the larger challenge of the show. How do you get both the look and the spirit of Tolkien's world right? What does Middle-earth need to look like, need to feel like, to be recognizable as such? And what were the things that this story needed to have to separate it out from the very recent, at least in elf years, film adaptations of The Lord of the Rings? To find out the answer to all of those questions, we are going to talk to 13 out of the hundreds of artisans and artists who brought The Rings of Power to life. And we are going to start with the showrunners, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, and the dramatic questions they found in Tolkien that they believed could support a prequel series. Before we even started cracking plot and story in the writer's room, we talked a lot about, you know, what is good and evil in Tolkien? What is tragedy in Tolkien? What is a victory? What is a defeat? We wrote on the whiteboard these various principles, and one of them was good is a choice, and it's one the characters have to keep making. We also talked about the show as being an exploration of characters struggling with their own good. The tragedy or triumph not being about what becomes of someone, but what someone becomes. We hoped we weren't jumping the gun, but we found the idea of some unexpected pairings irresistible. From very early on, the idea that season one would end with the creation of the three elven rings was a pretty firm flag we had planted in our minds. The entire first season would be about what led to the acceptance of the Faustian bargain that was the rings. That was always the spine of season one. There was always like a military threat, evil gaining ground and winning somewhere in Middle Earth. That was part of the original pitch that got us the gig. That became, what if Mordor was something else before Mordor? Corruption of nature is a very Tolkienian idea that we wanted to explore. What if you could do it in a way that was actually geologically possible? And, you know, was it just someone powerful waving their arms and making something happen? Sort of a confluence of several things that came together. And we said, oh, well, actually, A plus B plus C could equal Volcano, which could equal Mordor. That was always the spine of season one. Elrond would be on one journey involving dwarves and involving Mithril, and Galadriel would be on another journey involving a trip to Numenor and raising an army. And both of those journeys would end in defeat, and the elves in desperation would turn to magic and rings, which is a very mixed blessing in Tolkien. We must make three. Three? Why three? One will always corrupt. Two will divide. But with three, there is balance. You know, for all the brouhaha about rings and whether one will rule them all, it's not really the magical elements themselves that are the big draw of Tolkien's work. It's Middle-earth, which Tolkien himself called a secondary world, and his stories are these incredible doorways for readers to walk through and immerse themselves and get lost in this expansive place that feels real in all of the ways that matter, besides the actual fact of it not being on a map. But it has a map, and it has seasons and geology and nature and weather patterns and ocean currents. 
the setting has a level of reality that the series really wanted to embrace, both in front of and behind the camera. Ironically, one of the most magical things about Middle Earth is how real it feels. It's a fantasy that plays consistently within its own rules. It was worked out with a rigor, the rigor of a linguist and of a historian. Tolkien literally would work out the phase of the moon that would be going during the part of Frodo's journey that he was in in the Third Age. And that's one of the reasons why you go there. It feels discovered, not invented. So who do you recruit? Who do you get to help you discover Middle-earth in a visual medium? Well, the person who's done about as much exploring of Tolkien's Legendarium as anyone alive is John Howe. He's been an illustrator of Middle-earth for decades. And of course, he, along with Alan Lee, did a ton of concept work for the Peter Jackson films. His work as a concept artist on Rings of Power was global. How did illustrations of all the things you would expect a concept artist to cover? Landscapes, architecture of key spaces, design motifs for different factions and cultures. But he did so with an incredible depth and sensitivity to those realistic details that make Tolkien, Tolkien. Here's John Howe. Fantasy requires some form of credibility so that people will willingly suspend disbelief. And if you can't capture that, they'll always be a step back and not involved. There are many ways to actually capture that credibility, and one of them is to be rigorous about techniques and materials. Every object created by a culture is an opportunity to deepen that cultural experience a little more. It doesn't matter whether it's a doorknob, a cup, or a cathedral. It's the same culture, and it needs to belong to that same world. Especially in a world like Middle-earth, you're in an extension of the natural world. There is an in-world logic which is applied, and then general logic, which will establish credibility. And if you can maintain an equilibrium between all of those, you can have extraordinary things which you would never find on Earth, but also they make sense and they're believable. That believability, that grounding in the logic of a natural world, was what guided decisions for every department, maybe most especially for the department in charge of handling the fantastical elements, the VFX team. Here's senior VFX supervisor Jason Smith on what reality means in a fantasy show like Rings of Power. All of us have a desire for an aesthetic that leans towards the realist. Even if we're doing something fantastical, and maybe especially if we're doing something fantastical, I want to latch on to as much reality as I can. Sometimes you do just have to kind of step back and, and let it be fantasy. But I think you can only do that after you've invested enough time with the audience to let them relax and, and know that it's real. The magic on the show is a good example. You're not seeing a lot of lightning bolts or glowy tendrils of magic flowing from one being to another. What you're seeing is an effect on the environment. You're seeing trees bending. You're seeing rocks being levitated to use the real angle as much as possible. Prioritizing the concept of realism is one thing and requiring an expansive natural world is another. Doing both in our actual real world is hard. And when we're talking about making physical spaces and sets real, the show gave production designer Ramsey Avery a literally monumental task. Here's Ramsey Avery. A couple of my very first meetings with JD and Patrick, there were a series of bullet points that were the critical things for them. The first one was it had to be real. The audience had to accept, believe that it was a real place. It couldn't be stylized, abstracted. It needed to feel like there was a dirt and a grit. Everywhere we could build an environment to the extent that we could build an environment, we should push to build as big of an environment as we could. It must be real. The reality of the sets did 
what you hope they'll do. Ground the actors who need to tell the story. Here is Sofia Nomvete, who plays Disa, and Charlie Vickers, who plays Halbrand. It was really hard and quite a fun game that Owain and I and a few of the other cast members used to play of like what's real and what's not. Everything was so authentic and laden with natural materials, as well as incredible tapestry and creativity from the design production. You walk in and you immediately feel like a dwarf when you know you're playing a dwarf. If you are not playing a dwarf, but you're within the dwarven kingdom, you absolutely know exactly where you are. You could feel the ground beneath us, around us. You could shut your eyes, walk into Moria. I'm sure you'd know exactly where you were. These different sets, they're so visceral. I mean, the Southland set was a village on a farm just outside of Auckland, and that was completely interactive. The same can be said with Numenor and the raft scene and all that stuff. This was a full city that we could be a part of. You feel so privileged as an actor to be able to work on sets like this because it does half the job for you. You're in that environment. Whereas in, say, in the theatre, you're having to use your imagination to create it. In this, your imagination enhances what's already there. There needed to be a lot already there, though. The Middle-earth that Rings of Power explores has six main different cultures peopled by very different magical and also aggressively non-magical beings, plus like a heaven, Garden of Eden analog, and also, you know, a hell on Earth to eventually build out in Mordor. Something to look forward to. And all of that poses a danger, succinctly put by VFX supervisor Jason Smith. With all of the different little subworlds within Middle-earth, there was a danger of people just getting lost to the point that they're like, wait, are we in Numenor still? Are those hobbits in Numenor? So how do they solve that problem? What are the principles that the Rings of Power team needed to have incredibly clear before any wood planks were laid, before any fabric was stitched, before the first digital landscape was painted? Well, listen to production designer Ramsey Avery and VFX supervisor Jason Smith. The form and visual language for each culture had to be distinct enough that anytime anybody would happen to walk into a room, and if they were watching over somebody else's shoulder, they would have to know where they were in the story. You want to help the audience by turning the screw so much that they really understand that they're in a different place. I could go through each world and name the colors that made up that world and name the little cues that we're giving to the audience that, hey, you're in a new world. A lot of those cues come down to shapes and sensibility. Everything in the elven world is about verticality. It's how nature forms into architecture. Then to contrast that, the dwarves are of stone and of flame, and their mountain is over the top of them, and they're stout. So their world is about horizontal planes interrupted with diagonals. Humans in the Southland are downtrodden. They are the lowest of the castes of the people, right? So their architecture is melting into the landscapes. And you have the nature of the grasses of the earth being the grasses of the thatch on the roof. So you get that sense of they're embedded in nature in an architectural way. To contrast with Numenor is to go against that melty architecture and everything in Numenor is very form-centered. It's rectangles, it's spheres, it's cylinders. It's this strength of form language that stacks on top of it. So you really feel the sense of things being built. The strategies that Rings of Power is using to make each place we see in Middle-earth feel distinctly different 
and therefore distinctly of a vast, expansive world that contains many cultures, aren't just visual ones. That desire for distinction is also embedded into even how the characters carry themselves, how they move. Here is actor Morvith Clark. There was one game we played with our movement director, Lara, where she'd hide something in a room and then the hobbits would go in and find it as hobbits, which obviously was lots of like scuttling around and kind of like little squirrels. And then the dwarves moving tables really fast out of the way. And then the elves was kind of barely doing anything and preserving as much energy as they could. There's an economical aspect to them in everything they do. The sense of innate distinction and how the characters approach the world is also one that is embraced by the show's incredible score. Composer Bear McCreary creates roadmaps for us to walk through Middle-earth blindfolded, just via his instrumentation and rhythm choices. I felt very strongly that you, as an audience member, should be able to have your eyes closed and know where you are at any given scene, based on the music alone. Nobody goes off train. And nobody walks alone. That's right. Nobody goes up train. And nobody walks alone. Every realm has a cultural sound, and that sound is built from a very specific musical language and instruments that are only used in that environment for that culture. In that language, you can then have different themes. So it's almost like the musical culture is an umbrella under which all the themes exist. And they have to be discreet enough that you can have competing themes in the same culture. Nori's theme has elements of Harfoot culture, but it just sounds different. And it's not just different, it tells us how they're different. Nori's theme has more strings, more Celtic influence. The melody is wider, it reaches more. It's more wide-eyed and ambitious and heroic Whereas the Harfoot theme leans on nomadic instruments, these wooden sounds, it's simpler. That tells you something about who Sadik Burroughs is, and it tells you about who Nori is without even having to use your eyes. It's cool that you don't have to use your eyes to get a sense of the world of Rings of Power and the characters within it. But it is equally cool how the show expands the kind of fantasy characters that we have and haven't seen before. The show returns to the minds of Moria before its fall, in fact, at the beginning of the peak of its power and influence as the rich and lively kingdom of Khazad-dum. And it shows us the kind of characters that have been in Middle-earth all along, but that the Fellowship just didn't happen to see. This includes one of the series' main supporting characters, Disa, a resonator of the halls of Khazad-dum and the wife of Prince Durin. In Disa, the show had the opportunity to both reflect what we already know about dwarves and delve a little bit deeper. Here's actor Sophia Numvete. It is the first time that we present, create, and embrace the female dwarf in all her entirety. One apology to Disa and you're off. Absolutely no staying for dinner. Understood. This cannot be Elrond, can it? I fear so. You're staying for dinner. He's leaving. He's staying. He's leaving. He's staying. We all knew how much this mattered and, and how much we wanted to get it right, whatever right is. They were hugely collaborative. And so they molded a Disa that fit Sophia. 
<laughs> we could never make a version which they haven't done across the board of where something is plonked onto a body. It has to be an extension of us. Here is costume designer Kate Holly. We were playing with her, Raymond. There's a sensuality that comes from the dwarves' love of materiality and stone and water and precious metals. When Gimli describes the palaces of old and Moria and all of that, there's actually a lot of intricacy in there and things that suggest not hard angles. Stone can be softened by water. And I felt Deesa was like water next to Durin, who's more of the stone world. It's striking how much Kate and Sophia talk about Deesa's design in these organic terms in terms of these visual markers of the character that needed to feel like an extension of the actress. And amazingly, it became this sort of virtuous cycle, where changes to Disa's costume that brought her closer to Sophia actually brought Sophia closer to Disa. There was actually a first draft of her costume, which Kate Hawley had. It was big and it was bold, but it was quite restrictive in many ways and quite covered. After that first draft, COVID really hit and we took a break. So we came back, actually, to revisit Deesa's costume. When you look at an actor, sometimes you want to emphasize their qualities. Sophia's just got gorgeous curves. And when I was doing a lot of research on the Nibelung and Germanic Norse mythology, all of those references that Tolkien had looked to, as well as Celtic, and those Celtic dresses, you know, you look at Brunhilde and all of those women had bare arms and legs. And I thought, well, we don't have to cover the dwarves up. I just remember sweet Kate Hawley saying, now... Sophia, I've talked this through with Lindsay, lovely Lindsay Weber, our exec producer. What happens if we make Deesa really sexy? Lindsay's on board. How do you feel? I cried instantly. Why should we apologize for her? Why should we not embrace her in all her glory? That set Deesa's confidence alight. And it forced me to set mine alight and to push through the heart and the love and the beauty of this female dwarf. How did you two first become acquainted? I was resonating a freshly open chamber. Resonating? It's when we sing to the stone. You see, a mountain's like a person made of countless small parts. Sing to it properly. Each of those parts will reflect your song back to you. Her singing is magic. And so the gold that is so present within Khazad Doom, we wanted that to reflect because we know how much she is in connection with the materials around her. So thus the golden contact lenses were born, the slit up her silk woven skirt. We wanted her to be the water that flows through the rocks. We can actually step back and find the same sort of discoveries that define Disa through her relationship to the natural world on a macro level as well. Rings of Power explores a different time period, thousands of years before the events of The Lord of the Rings, and it was an opportunity to re-explore places that are in the novels and the films, as well as to create completely new places that no longer exist by the time Sam is tending his garden in the Shire. Obviously, this involved laying out key principles to guide the design of the series and the look of the characters, which meant the entire team needed to be very clear about what makes this second age of Middle-earth different. Here is John Howe and Kate Hawley. The third age is very much an age of empires that have crumbled and disappeared, of ruins that are lost, of kingdoms that are almost legends now, whereas the second age is when all of that is happening. It's a, such a different time period. In this first and second age, there's a visceral wildness to it. 
you know, that wonderful story of creation in the Silmarillion nearly makes me weep, (laughs) where things haven't settled. It's like the earth is still moving underneath you. So I wanted things to have that, um, that sense of smell and touch. There's room for some things to feel closer to the third age that we are more familiar with. And there's other things that could feel more of the classical mythology age. So it was layer upon layer that we looked at. The challenge of creating the sense of a distinct moment in time in this fantasy world with a long, long history is also something that composer Bear McCreary had to directly address with the score. And as he's about to explain, keying into that history actually provided opportunities to do a lot that's new. What we wanted was continuity, not quotation. It was a tricky balancing act. It's part art and part craft and part science and part inspiration. Though it was not contractually possible for me to quote Howard Shore's beautiful Shire theme, even if I could, would it be the right thing for these people that don't have a home? All the pieces are there in the Harfoot theme, which feels very folky, and Nori's theme, which feels very Celtic and beautiful. All the pieces are there for those ideas to settle down and for thousands of years to pass and for something like Howard Shore's Shire theme to emerge from it. And as a fan going from the show to the movies one day, chronologically, you'd feel that continuity. What Bear is talking about here, this continuity, not quotation idea, is I think most excitingly applied to the huge new location that Rings of Power visits. What is this place? There is only one place it can be. The island kingdom of Numenor. We've never been to Numenor before in a live action on-screen adaptation. And I wanted that realm to feel like it was something different, something ancient. The Numenor theme uses a bunch of instruments that have never been featured prominently in any adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. It feels like it belongs there, but it also tells you you've gone somewhere new. I'm breaking in here to say that it would have been absolutely heartbreaking if Numenor had just been Gondor with boats. And also to note, all of the visual markers that we have been talking about, the form language of the architecture, the color choices, the material choices for costumes and armor, the way the actors walk with a little bit more erectness and regality than their put-upon cousins in the Southlands, all of that is going on in Numenor too and making it feel distinct. But honestly, it is the score that gives Numenor its grand historical weight, the sense of a lost empire that we're magically seeing at its peak. And that comes through the instrument choices that McCreary made for its main theme. For me, the idea that Numenor would sound like Gondor is almost silly because it's thousands of years later. That's like saying the music of ancient Egypt should sound like the music of New York City today. I'm using frame drums and doombecks and an Armenian woodwind instrument called a duduk and a Turkish string instrument called a yaili tambor. I'm using Middle Eastern harmonies. Why does it not completely obliterate our sense of what Lord of the Rings is? Because I'm also writing a really strong melody that exists in the brass as well and has this Camelot quality. Ultimately, it's Atlantis and it's Camelot. That's what it is. I like the idea that thousands of years later, this culture 
is lost to the degree that you're not hearing the Numenor theme in Gondor any more than we are walking around singing ancient Egyptian melodies today. They're gone. They're gone. I some find that very dramatically satisfying. Of course, there is a reason that Numenor goes away. And even in this first season, the island nation starts to make some of the choices that will lead it closer to its downfall, including sending an expedition to the shores of Middle-earth. And there is a fantastic antagonistic force native to Middle-earth that the show needed to put its own spin on. The race of orcs. When I was a child, I heard stories of elves taken by Morgoth, tortured, twisted, made into a new and ruined form of life. You are one of them, are you not? The Moriondor, the sons of the dark, the first orcs. We prefer Uruk. Think about that idea of continuity, not quotation, as you listen to Wayne Chi Yip director of episodes three, four, and eight, and head of prosthetics, Jamie Wilson, as they discuss what the show was trying to achieve in reimagining orcs as they would have existed in the second age. Here's Wenchi Yip. With the orcs, we wanted to pay homage to what had come before, but you know, we wanted to also do something different because obviously this is the second age. This is 2000 years before Lord of the Rings. The War of Wrath was over and the bad guys had sort of lost and the orcs had all scurried away. They've obviously taken refuge and lived underground. Maybe that's affected the color of their skin, you know, that they're much more sensitive to the sunlight. And in that way, we wanted to take a peek and and get a sense of orc culture to flesh them out a little bit more and not make them just mindless beasts. Here's head of prosthetics, Jamie Wilson. They're just a race that's trying to survive as best they can. There is some homage and some link, and we wanted the fans to feel friendly and comfortable, and they kind of knew where they were back in Middle Earth. But at the same time, we did our own thing. They're not bred for war. The arms weren't as chunky. They're much more sinewy, skinny, scrawny, with more detailing on the face. We had a policy of trying to keep as much of it as real, like with the actors, rather than masses of prosthetics or CGI. Now, the orcs do have full facial, but they were designed in a way to complement the actor's face underneath so that when they're expressing themselves and talking, some of them come through. There was a requirement to come up with our own unique design or style for this production. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of legacy knowledge. That legacy knowledge plays into one of the main antagonists on the show, a chilling and chillingly soulful elf-orc hybrid figure we come to know as Adar. You have been told many lies. To untangle it all would all but require the creation of a new world. But that is something only the gods can know, and I am no god. At least, not yet. What are you? We're very much in Orondir's shoes in terms of hearing this name, more importantly, seeing the effect it had on orcs. What monster makes other monsters cower and fear? Because surely that monster's going to be more horrific. So we wanted to keep building on this idea that finally when you meet this Adar character, that, you know, the most terrifying creature you've ever imagined is going to turn up. And then what turns up actually is a very sort of regal, thoughtful person turns up to kind of really sort of turn things on its head and also contributing to the bigger mystery of who Sauron is. Meaning no offence, Lord Father, but where is he? What happened to Sauron? I killed Sauron. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. (laughs) Let's put Sauron on hold for now. 
Adar has bigger concerns, and so do we, because it's one thing to sort of create all of these delineations and boundaries and cultural definitions that are based in an understanding of Tolkien and the inspiration that he draws from the natural world. But season one of Rings of Power doesn't keep its storylines separate. It combines them, beginning in episode six, Uruk. When Adar launches his plan to take over the Southlands, the Southlanders fight back and they get some unexpected help from the arrival of the Numenorean expedition led, of course, by Captain Galadriel. So we have a lot of characters on hand for when the battle goes south, Mount Doom explodes, and the landscape of the Southlands gets ruined. It was the task of director Charlotte Brandstrom to orchestrate all of this and create a convincing crescendo for the first season of the show. When I got to New Zealand, I realized that my two episodes really stood out. This big battle in episode six and then the aftermath of the volcanic eruption in seven. It's a moment when everything changes. People were fighting, creating great drama, great action to make it darker, harder, edgier and pushing the characters. It's not just the characters who get pushed. In a very Rings of Power way, episode six and especially episode seven push on the landscape, too. They let flames and volcanic eruptions guide the lighting choices and the distinct color choices that define these two episodes. Here is episode six and seven cinematographer Alex Diesenhoff. Charlotte and I really looked at grounding everything even more so than it had been in the previous episodes. And we had the chance to do it because we had an advantage of having all the muddy, grimy, gritty locations that really helps ground everything and makes things feel real. So when you put this fantastic production design, art direction, visual effects, stunt, special effects, all of those departments working at their best, and then the core of it is at this real place, you get this amazing mix of magical and and real. The biggest thing was to let our real locations guide us, not try to overlight them or overshoot them. Leaning on locations helped simplify choices for the camera team. But adding additional people coming in from all over the different storylines was an exciting moment for the actors to dig into. And in a way, it helped them reinvest in the characters they were playing through just being one among a fellowship of people all gathered in the same place at the same time. Here is actor Morvith Clark. Everyone was so excited about the battle because it's also when characters met and therefore actors met. So finally, it was like I was on set with this and they're like, yay, and Tyro. It was just incredible. We'd had moments where there was like a lot of supporting actors on set. And those days are always amazing because it kind of feels that you're actually existing in a place. Something that was particularly wonderful for me was to work with all the horse wranglers. And I think the horse work in this is just incredible. I always thought that those parts of like horse riding and stuff was CGI. And I couldn't believe that it was actually being done. No matter what age of Middle Earth we're in, it is a fact of the age of streaming in which we all live that however much Rings of Power did practically, it went over a lot of the same work again with CGI, which augmented the in-camera stunt work to give the Battle for the Southlands a fullness inside of every frame of action. What we found is that the reality of what's safe when you involve horses in a mock battle, that reality gets pretty harsh. We had to have huge spaces between the, the humans and the horses in general, and even between human and human. You know, you get to a point where you have so many packed in and somebody can swing a sword the wrong way and something could go wrong. So you're always trying to think about safety first because nothing matters if somebody gets hurt out there, you know? As soon as the sequence was shot, we cut it together so that it felt right for the action. And then we took screen grabs of every single shot, maybe one, but maybe two or three, depending on what the camera's doing. 
And we went back and we drew in extra characters. We would go shot by shot and say, a horse will go here with an orc down here trying to attack it. And that became kind of a Bible, a list of exactly what we're going to do in each shot. Each shot in the battle sequence is designed not just to feel epic, but trackable for us to still know exactly where the characters we care about are and what they're feeling, even as the camera is also showing chaos around them. Tackling this challenge took very careful planning from cinematographer Alex Diesenhoff and director Charlotte Brandstrom. If you have all those people out front stabbing each other, you, you can do it and you, you do do it to show what's happening. But then if you just did that for five minutes straight, you'd just you'd lose track of who's who and you wouldn't care anymore. So it was important for us to always find a perspective. It's easy to just get drawn into it and just try to do some incredible shots. But if they don't tell a story, you're sort of lost. What I do with the battle is I break it down in what I call the beat sheet with a lot of different beats. I start by working on the setup, then I choose perspective and I decide from whose point of view am I telling the story. We didn't even storyboard that much, we shortlisted it mostly. We tracked every single character. We drew maps, overhead maps of the village. We would draw, okay, this person goes from the bridge to the tavern, or this other person falls off a roof and gets thrown around by a huge orc behind the tavern. We had to first keep track of all of that. And then we would break it down into sequences and say, okay, how, how do we need to shoot this to achieve this effect? And we went from there. It gets very easy. You just shoot everything from their angle. It was Bronwyn was sitting by the couch. Aaron there was standing on the tower. Theo was inside the tavern. And I chose those three point of views. I did a few nights with only Bronwyn. Everything was shot from her perspective. Then I went to Ismail and I shot him from his perspective on the battle. And same for Theo. It was really important for me to stay with those three point of views. There's also a kind of sneaky bait and switch that Brandstrom is able to pull off here. We get immersed in the rhythms of these on-the-ground individual perspectives of the characters surviving in combat and finally relaxing in its aftermath, which means that the moment the show pulls back to an awesome geological perspective feels all the more staggering when the power of Middle-earth itself is unleashed. While it does look terrifying, J.D. particularly wanted it to have a bit of beauty. Because what Adar is doing is creating a place for his children to live. And so it shouldn't just be nasty. It's horrible, but there's an underlying beauty in the horror. I was trying to, in my mind, separate out the action from the kind of biblical intensity of the ending. The awe-inspiring scale of this volcano going off, the shock of it, and there's a beauty to it a mighty and terrifying beauty, nonetheless, that I wanted to communicate. I, I wanted it to feel a little different than all the other action, which was very frantic and personal and intimate and at times ugly and bitter and play something that, that felt almost very first stage in its scale. Scale is a good word here, because while the practical production elements certainly do help, the VFX department had to shoulder this sequence and do something very Tolkienian with it. They had to make the eruption of Mount Doom and the ruin of the Southlands feel both like a process of the natural world and thrillingly supernatural in its scale and power. This took a real team effort, three different effects houses, and a completely different way of working from how the visual effects pipeline in television and film normally goes. To talk about the show's overlapping and collaborative process for the volcanic eruption sequence, here is VFX supervisor Jason Smith. We ended up hiring multiple companies. Weta, 
who took on a lot of big work, including the stuff up at the tower with the dam opening and all the water simulations up there. And they took the water all the way down until it goes underground. And then ILM picked up the baton <laughs> and ran forward with it, carrying the water underneath the village where it spurts out some holes in the village. We had one vendor, RSP, doing lava bombs raining down in the village, right? But we had ILM's volcano tossing lava bombs. What if they look different? You know, they can't look different. The audience is going to come out of the story and wonder why the lava bombs look different. There was so much sharing there. It's a little non-standard. We would send that cut out every single week and it would have everybody's new work. We would send RSP and ILM's work to Weta and Weta's work and, and RSP's work to ILM. Basically, we just wanted to make everybody one big company. We opened the lines of communication. We showed as much as we could in terms of here's the latest, here's the latest. And it did happen that ILM would look at the lava bombs and be like, so they're a little more red than we thought. Is that kind of what you're thinking? And we'd say, yep. And that way they were able to match it. And it's funny looking back, it sounds kind of obvious and simple, but at the time it was definitely like a real effort to get all these companies together, show them each other's work every week. And I would sit there and watch it with each company too, and just talk about like, okay, how are we doing with the handoff between their AshCloud at Weta and your AshCloud? So many challenges throughout all that stuff. It's really been rewarding to tackle them and, and then come up with a result that we hear people like. The creation of Mordor could be a season-ending reveal. But Rings of Power chooses to go much further than that. Episode 8 covers the creation of the three elven rings and the reveal that Halbrand, the charming rake who has been Galadriel's key ally throughout the season, is in fact Sauron in disguise. Oh no. Whatever else you think about that moment, you can see the strength of Rings of Power's definition of Middle-earth and its people through the one person who can kind of defy those definitions, who can move across boundaries and can speak any of Middle-earth's slightly differently inflected languages. That is who Sauron, and also importantly, who Halbrand is, at least according to actor Charlie Vickers. In my mind, Sauron as Halbrand is experiencing and feeling everything that a human would feel in those situations because he's a shapeshifter. And I think in order to convince someone like Galadriel and all these characters that he meets, he has to fully embody this form that he's taken on. I wanted the reveal to feel natural, like he was shedding the Halbrand skin and he could reveal a fraction of his true form. There were subtle things like a shift in voice and posture, but I didn't want it to feel like an evil supervillain. I wanted it to feel like almost like a release, like now I can finally show you who I am. Tell me, Yonde. I have been awake since before the breaking of the first silence. In that time, I have had many names. It's nice to get the confirmation in words, but composer Bear McCreary made the choice to nest the truth about who Sauron is into the score. And he did this in a very Sauron way, in a way that is wonderfully invisible, until the moment that you realize you've heard it all along. Halbrand's theme is Sauron's theme played backwards. I think it's almost a giveaway in that Sauron's theme is very tight and small. I think of it like a ring itself that circles around a central point. All the protagonists have giant leaps. Their melodies, if you were to paint them on a wall, reach upward heroically. What's Halbrand? It's lower. It's contained. The only other character theme that's like that is Sauron. 
The idea that evil characters have small shapes and heroic characters have big shapes, to me, is ingrained in my DNA. It's part of our shared heritage in sort of classical orchestral music, and I very much use that here. And I think it's a I think it's a dead giveaway that Halbrand doesn't have the kind of heroic leaps everybody else has. I wanted that to be clear, and I planned it that way intentionally, so that there would be a real payoff. The first season of The Rings of Power has kind of a thankless task. It needs to set up the second age of Middle-earth, a time and multiple places, so that they feel both fresh and of a piece with the audience's expectations. And then the show has to flip over the table that it has so carefully set and point out to us that the mess we're seeing was reverse-engineered from the Middle-earth that we remember. That shift was something the showrunners thought could be thrilling if it was done right, but they were worried about it. They ultimately chose to organize the show the way that it is structured, because At its core, this first season runs on the dramatic logic that is at the heart of Tolkien's writing. When I was your age, there was no such thing as orcs. Now, how many have you killed? Many. Good. I would not use such words. Why not? It darkens the heart. To call dark deeds good. It gives place for evil to thrive inside us. Every war is fought both without and within. Of that, every soldier must be mindful. Well, I sold you then. Perhaps we can make one of you yet. In Tolkien, no victory is ever final, no defeat is ever final. Death is not the worst fate. There are fates worse than death in Tolkien, where people going evil, people choosing to let themselves go under the control of the shadow is true tragedy in Tolkien. There are such things as good deaths, where characters die fighting impossible battles that they had no hopes of winning, but the point wasn't to win, the point was to fight. And the fact that they fought meant they chose the good. That's a a very Tolkienian thing, but it's also something I I believe in my own life. What is the old dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living? Trying to examine my life each day and and saying, am I heading towards the light or am I heading towards the darkness? So being in a dramatic world in in which that was not just tolerable, but part of the point of entering was a place that I could feel right at home. When you're creating something in Middle-earth, you have all these different worlds that feel different and look different with characters who act different, and it allows you to do everything. There's humor over here. There's, you know, Shakespearean power struggles over there. There's Braveheart is over here. And it kind of lets you play in every genre at once in a way. And that lets you smuggle in a lot of what's important to you personally as a writer. When I watch the show, you know, now having a little bit of distance from it, I I sort of see like a little Richard Linklater movie in over here. And then I see a little reference to Lawrence of Arabia over there. And then Elrond's up in the tree, which we stole from John Ford, young Mr. Lincoln. So it allows you to, to do a lot for potentially a vast audience, and hopefully we've, we've honored it. This has been IndieWire's Deep Dive on the first season of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. It was written by Sarah Shackett and Chris O'Fault and narrated by Sarah Shackett. Sound editing by Zach Valenti and additional editorial support from Trevor Wallace and Par Park. A special thanks to the folks at Prime Video and to Bear McCreary for providing the music for this episode. And we will be back in the Filmmaker Toolkit feed tomorrow, actually, for a conversation with the Daniels all about everything, everywhere, all at once. You can learn about swarm editing. It'll be a good time, I promise. Until then, thank you for listening. And namare. Namare.